0: Welcome to the longevity week podcast hosted by the longevity forum. We'll be featuring podcasts all week on the theme sustainability in a decade of healthy aging, which you can listen to online at the longevityforum.com. on this episode, Andrew J. Scott, professor of economics at London business school and co-founder of the longevity forum will be interviewing Lucy Kellaway, the co-founder of now teach. I'll leave this to you, Andrew.
1: Well, it's a pleasure to be talking today to Lucy Kellaway. Lucy teaches economics and business studies uh, at a school in Hackney, East London, and she's co-founder with Katie Walgrave of Now Teach, a charity aimed at bringing talented people with experience into the classroom. She's also an author of several books, including her most recent, Reeducated, How I Changed My Job, My Home, My Husband, and My Hair. Thank you, Lucy, for joining us today.
0: It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Uh, I thought the book was great. It's uh, brilliantly written. It moves at a pace and there's the sort of the personal and the deep and profound and even talks about how you teach elasticity of demand in a classroom, which is an economics professor I was most interested in. We're talking about longevity and so I'm going to focus on transitions. And The book is about your transition and how you did it and what you made of it. And You say early on in the book that many people, yourself included, arrived in the late 50s with no plans for the rest of their lives. And I wanted to write a book for them. Let's start with that point. You know, why now in particular, uh, is there so much interest in this transition? And is the book for everyone in the late fifties or is it only for people in the late fifties? You know, why do you feel the need to tell your story, not just as a story, but for others as well?
0: Okay, so why do I feel the need to tell my story? Well, I don't know, every story is really a sales pitch. This one is no exception to that. Um, As you say, I'm the co-founder of Now Teach. What I'm really trying to do all the time is hunt out people of a certain age who are ready to chuck in their old careers and train again as a teacher. So I want to tell my story again and again and again for that But there is this broader point, even for people who think that teaching sounds like a hideous thing to do with their lives. I still want to reach them because I think that they might be interested in my story because this whole restlessness thing that so happens to so many of us in our late 50s, it's huge. I know that from writing my columns at the FT. As soon as I wrote anything about, you know, a confused and lost 50 somethings, the mailbag was absolutely massive. But also the book is for people who are really happy with their lives and they might like it as a spectator sport um, to watch people who are fed up with their lives and, um, and want to change
1: them. Hopefully we'll get a few people interested now teach listening uh, to this. But I want to focus on the motivation of the transition. You just touched on some of it. You paint in a a very sort of understated but sort of punchy way this sort of combination of the passage of time uh, that led to a restlessness, a sense of disconnection, boredom, tiredness as well as sort of major life events, particularly the passing of your parents and the the children leaving home. I wonder what you felt, you know, which was the most important in driving you in this transition? Or was it really the interplay?
0: I think it's the interplay. I think what happens is that, well, there's a sort of undertow. There's the fact that as we get older, lots of us, me included, what we want out of life changes. Our motivations change. So when I went into journalism, I thought it would be glamorous. Um, I loved the idea of having my name, my byline in the paper. You know, I thought it was, would be a laugh. Um, you know, it was all of those things. Those things were massively important to me when I was in my 20s. By the time I was in my late 50s, and i have been doing it for over 30 years... I got no buzz out of seeing my name in the paper whatsoever. I didn't think I'd become remotely glamorous. You know, I just, I didn't care about any of that stuff anymore. And instead, I sort of thought, I need to do something more useful with my life. If that doesn't sound too priggish, you know, i I, I just thought... I'd actually looked at my daughter, who had become a teacher. She had joined Teach First, and I spoke to her. She was teaching in this really tough school in Leeds, and I spoke to her pretty much every night in her first term. And I suddenly thought, oh my God, my daughter has been more useful in the first term of her working life than I've been in three and a half decades of mine. So there was all of that going on. But You refer to the life, the sort of big life events. I think those were the triggers. Those were the sort of, to mix metaphors, the last straw. All of this was bubbling away anyway, but it took, first of all, my mum's death and then finally my dad's death for me to think, enough, I'm changing right
1: now. And there's a, you know, what's lovely about the book is the way you bring in the different generations. You talk a lot about your parents and your children. And, you know, let me think, I never spoke to my parents how they felt when their parents passed. And I, you know, I, I don't know if my parents would have been thinking about getting re-educated in the late 50s. Mm. And i about yours as well. So, you know, do you think it, it, it is a generational thing? Do you think or it's a more of a personal thing? Do you think your parents would have understood this?
0: That's so interesting, Andrew, because I suddenly realise I didn't really ask my parents how they felt when their parents died, not really. I mean, I suppose they were younger, they kind of got on with it. But as for the reinvention of our parents' generation, one of the things that makes us different, I guess, is longevity. It's what we're talking about here. Also, you know, they were much more in the era of jobs for life, so what happened in my dad's case, he was uh, an academic and a librarian at the University of London, and he had done the same thing. And in his mid-50s, at pretty much the same point that I started wobbling badly, so did he. He thought he had something wrong with his brain, which he may or may not have had he was never diagnosed. I think, looking back on it now, he may have been very depressed. He took early retirement, and that was it. He didn't do paid work ever again, and he lived till he was nearly 90. He was a very cultured man, and he went to an art gallery every day and went to a concert pretty much every day. So he did keep himself mentally stimulated, but I still think that wasn't ideal. But my mum was sort of more interesting, in that she became a school teacher when um, my You know, very, very typical. My brother had gone to primary school. So she sort of went back to work. And she did that until her mid 60s. And she did reinvent herself. She went the other way to me um, and became a writer about gardens. She wrote garden books and uh, was the correspondent on the oldie magazine. So I saw her reinventing herself too, to see my mum was professionally active until the day she died and she was 83. And that's a powerful
1: example. That certainly is. Now, that is really interesting. As you say, we all hear about longevity and as careers lengthen. Obviously, we have to think about that reinvention more. So it's interesting you had that example in your family. I'm always struck that the average Brit has never been so old, but never had so many years left to live, which I think is kind of one of the dilemmas we face. But you know you then have this you talk about this these life cycle events and the passage of time and then you you know you, you have this sort of great marie Kondo uh, sentence where you say i'm just going to get rid of things that don't give me joy uh, and this orange kitchen countertop makes its appearance which is sort of the lodestar of your of the book isn't it and you're sort of rosebud i suspect uh, in the film of the book <laughs> um but you know you you change an awful lot have you been a risk taker before is you taking risks a part of your character, or or was this the biggest risk you've ever done when you changed all of these things?
0: Yeah, it was definitely the biggest risk. Was I a risk taker? Well, I think this was very strange, and I think when we talk about people being risk takers and non-risk takers, that is too blunt, uh, categorization. So in some ways I was massively risk averse. Once my children were born, I wanted a job with no travel. I wanted to be very stable so that I could focus on them. Um, you know, I'd never taken financial risks. Everything was about stability. Um, Yet, you could say that professionally, I took risks in how I approached my career at the FT. I sort of started columns that hadn't been done on the paper before. I very much opened myself up to, you know, real ridicule and failure. So, I think you could say there was some sort of risk-taking risk taking Um, within the context of that very stable life and career. But yeah, I I, I suddenly thought that buying that house was the first major life decision I had taken. Isn't that incredible? I was then, oh, I think about 56 when I bought the house. I hadn't really taken a big decision to get married because I was pregnant anyway, so what the hell? Um, That's not to say that I wasn't with the person I wanted to be, but there wasn't an ooh, shall I, I?" moment. Um, Joining the FT was a no-brainer. I was just glad that they'd have me. Um, So there hadn't been those let's roll the dice decisions I just kept on going. And then the orange worktop, I can't say it walked into my life because worktops don't really walk, but you get the drift. I walked into the worktop's life and I just thought, I need to live in this house. And it, it was a risk in that it did involve, I mean, David and I were sort of separated anyway, but it involved making that formal by selling our family house that we'd been living in separately um, and sort of breaking up the edifice, the sort of, it felt that I was breaking up the edifice and the institution of the family. And that was really terrifying. Um, Financially, it was insane because I took my half share of the house, then any, all, put in all the savings that I had. So I was sort of, you know, really leveraging myself up, which made no sense at a time when other people are sort of cutting down in terms of where they live. Um, It was also miles away from anywhere. I mean, Islington is fairly on the map. This was deepest hackney, which was not even on the tube line. You know, so from whatever way you looked at it, it was a pretty peculiar thing to do. But I think it was the best decision I'd ever made.
1: Well, from the cover of the book, it is a glorious orange, I have to say. I can see the motivation. But, but, you know, I'm thinking, was the risk part of the
0: appeal? uh, Was it? Maybe, because risks make you feel very sort of tingly and alive. They make you feel the opposite of stuck. Um, No, I, I don't. But I don't think that was all of it. I think it was just a recognition that I was badly stuck in a lot of ways. And what the orange was, was it showed me that there was a way out, that I could, you know, I could break through it all. I could walk away, I could leave. And this was so modern. I'd lived in the sort of classic London, Victorian houses all my life. And this seemed something so different. And I thought I can make the numbers work. I can do this. And that was just an
1: incredible feeling. And of course, you made a number of changes, but now teach you're not asking people to change all four of those things. You're just asking them to change their job. So how big a risk is that for people, do you think? And what type of personality uh, finds it appealing?
0: Well, it would be so lovely if I could give you a really clear answer to that. But the truth is, there are lots and lots of different answers. And how big a risk it is depends on where the person is at that point. When I left the FT, I think there was no jeopardy at all, because I had had it. I was absolutely finished. I really did not want to write another column as long as I lived. So what was the very worst that could happen? Well, you know, I could maybe go into teaching and find that wasn't for me, but would that be a complete disaster? No, I had a pension and, you know, so on. Um, Interestingly, I first considered this 10 years Earlier, when my mum had died, I was then a really young thing of only my late 40s. Then the risk seemed too big to me because I was walking away from more. Um, Taking a big cut in income was going to be a bigger deal. I was still much more sort of tied up in the status of what I was doing. So uh, the risk would have been much, much bigger then. And I think that's one one of the joys of being a bit older is that the stakes for us are lower so we can take to what might seem like to outsiders like huge risks only we know they're not really very big risks at all you know we're not we're not putting ourselves on the line in the same way because we've already proved ourselves at something else so this is all extra we're into extra time maybe the, you know what we thought we had when we were much much younger, um, and and I when I said that we don't plan for this point in our lives, I thought by my oh you know I'm to be so old by my late fifties I would have kind of stopped working, so it wasn't a part of my career that I ever thought about. So all the deep satisfaction I get from it seems to be a bonus. Um, but so anyway, you you talked about risk and the, uh, and and so that would be my answer on risk um, for me. But there are other people who go into it, they're younger, they're in a much less stable financial position than I was. They're taking a real financial risk on it. Um, And also, it's simply, you know, it's difficult being a teacher. So it's a risk every time you walk into a classroom in a way um but that is an agreeable sort of risk of the tingly what i sort of think of as the tingly sort it makes you think life is full and interesting and there are lots of challenges
1: yeah and i like the point you make and i think that came out in the book is almost the biggest risk was not making the change right? and that sort of comes through well and you, you say that you felt you did consider it in your late 40s but you now i think you'd have been too young for the change there which i thought was very interesting but then you also give some other motivations for doing the transition and uh You know, as you say, this is a a challenge that many people face. So you say you want to do something more useful. And, uh, you know, that is a a seemingly quite a a common motivation. The desire to learn something new, which, again, is a common one. Then I thought there was some interesting ones. You you felt you were no longer getting better at what you're doing, which I thought was an admirable one. But then you said, I want to start at the bottom again. Do you want to elaborate on that? Because that was really interesting. And that ties into some of your earlier comments about status. Why did you want to start at the bottom again?
0: It's sort of amazing being at the bottom when you don't really have to prove yourself again. The bottom is a very scary place to be when you're in your 20s. But if you have lived your life somewhat towards the top in whatever profession you've been doing previously, with that comes quite a lot of responsibility. It's quite a lot of bullshit, actually, that goes with it. Um you get rather further away from the actual thing itself. I thought, wouldn't it be lovely to be sort of someone who no one is looking at? You're just a a, a trainee along with everyone else and you're trying to learn how to do something that's difficult and, and that's all there is to it. So the starting at the bottom, I absolutely loved, but only up to a point. There are difficulties with it because I... Um, you know, I'm holding forth to you, Andrew, because the truth is, if you spent your life as an FT columnist, you're quite used to being listened to. As a teacher, of course, you're listened to every day by your students. But are you listened to by the senior managers in school? Well, hell no, you're not. Of course, you're not. You're only a trainee. And I found that hard, Not, not at the beginning, because I knew I had to be blotting paper to soak up everything. But probably by the second or third year, I started thinking, hang on a minute. I really don't agree with this. I think we could do this differently and better. Why are we doing this? You know, my old past as a non-executive director to ask, why? Why are we doing this? Explain it to me. And actually, schools are very hierarchical places and Probably you're not going to be listened to when you um, come up with those views, which may or may not be right. Uh, possibly inexperienced
1: and not right at all. But that's quite hard. So, so having this other outlet and now, teacher must be invaluable there. But the other thing I wanted to sort of make a note on, we'll come to it later, perhaps became more is in all the motivations for the change. I think at the end you briefly say something along the lines, and you know, with the children leaving and your parents passing, you were no longer a carer, and I thought that was. Really interesting, because one of the themes of the book is how much of this is a change and how much of it is continuity. And I thought, you know, was that getting into a caring profession? That was part of the way you saw yourself as well as how you saw yourself making a contribution?
0: Oh, gosh, no, that wasn't what I meant. No, and I don't think... Teaching is a caring (laughs) profession. I mean, God knows we care enough, but uh, that isn't my understanding of care, although there can be elements of it sometimes if you're in safeguarding roles. That wasn't what I meant. What I meant is that if you are a carer, you're absolutely tied down. And, you know, you can't pick your own time. You know, you need if there is somebody who you are caring for, you can't just not be there um and so that it was you know my my dad was sort of slightly losing his grip on the world towards the end and he would ring up and not know where he was and I can't say well sorry dad I'm going to a party this evening or I'm going on a training course or actually I'm away for the weekend that wasn't going to work out at all so um you know it was a very big responsibility and when dad died and my children were at university I was free in a way that I've never been in my working life and of course there's sort of there's grief that goes with that but my god it's a new opportunity too. Okay interesting
1: and I want to talk now a little bit more about the actual transition itself and no doubt you feel it's a continual process but in the book you sort of say you you sat in the family home and you howled at Doing something irretrievable is the word you use. And, you know, just as the title of the book says, you change your job, your home, your husband, and your hair. Did you sort of think that you were going to do all of them, or do they kind of just go like dominoes? Um,
0: mm, you see, this is so interesting because it, before I started thinking about this and writing the book, I would have said there was no link between these things at all. Interesting. Um, you know, the career thing was for some of the reasons that we talk about, changing motivations and and, and all of that. Equally, and this is something um, that, that, that you've written about as well, um, Andrew, that, you know, maybe for some people, if we are living longer, it's it's too much time for one relationship. You know, that my my marriage, too, for different reasons, after having really been quite successful, after 25 years really had come to an end. Um And I would have said that those two were completely unrelated, but um, I think the link between them is that once you have made one change, change itself stops being frightening. So I, I think that is where the link is. Um, and even, I mean, of course, in the book, when I say how I changed my la and my hair, my hair is kind of a joke in a way, because who could care less? But I seriously do think that if I hadn't have changed all of the other things, I probably would still be slapping the brown dye on my hair too.
1: Interesting. Okay, so it does become easier. And, you know, the other thing I was mindful of uh, in the book, I remember talking about the 100 Your life to a student who came up to me and said, so what you're really saying, there's no such thing as a midlife crisis anymore, because you've got enough time to reinvent yourself and sort things out. And I was also interested in Mark Freeman, who runs Encore, who I know you know, who says we don't face a midlife crisis, we, we have a midlife chasm because there aren't the social institutions to support reinvention. And, you know, you, yours is not a midlife crisis, you don't call it that, but you did go through a, an unusual change and I wondered how you felt in terms of the social institutions and norms and supports. I mean, you sort of seem to just sort of blast through it, you give the sort of report of various people who were slightly as, askance or astonished at what you did. How did you feel? Did you feel you were, uh, you know, uh, out on a limb or did you feel that this was sort of a very normal thing and found loads of people going through the same process?
0: Um, No, I didn't think it was normal at all. And that was partly why I set up Now Teach, because, you know, what I saw both through my friends and acquaintances and through FT readers was, as we've already talked about, there was deaf, You know, there is this restlessness. There is the chasm. Nobody is saying, "Look, here is your milk round for, for you yeah. know for people in their late fifties. Here are the different things you can do. Here is how you start retraining. You know, it, these things are just beginning now, but we are really at the start of that." So no. Um, actually doing it was really unusual. So the fact that I, as one random journalist, could create a national news story about the fact that I was becoming a teacher in my late 50s shows how unusual it is. And thank God, thanks to Now Teacher, it's a lot less unusual, but it's still, you know, you still have to explain yourself quite thoroughly to your friends and family for something that a lot of them do think is completely mad. Um, so um, do I... A lot think it's mad, but a lot don't. So, I mean, I think that the social support or lack of it is very polarized. I think that there are a lot of people who would love to do something similar, but I but I can't bring themselves to for a whole number of reasons, and they are massively sort of admiring and supportive. Um, then there are people who just don't get it at all, but that's fine. I mean. Uh, you know again just going back to this point about how much easier it is when you're older you don't need everybody to love you and agree with you in the same way so if a few if a few people think you're nuts fine
1: and you know were the points when you wanted to just turn it all back and and just say oh my god I shouldn't be doing this i want to go back to before
0: no absolutely mm-hmm. never there are um a few things, aspects of my old life that I miss, um, one of them is my colleagues because I love chatting um, and I love chatting to people who are clever and funny and look at the world in interesting ways. And my FT columnist friends were absolutely brilliant. And to have them on tap every day was just wonderful. And, you know, a, a harassed staff room of teachers, um, even if they could match that, they're too busy to talk anyway. <laughs> um, so so I, I really miss that. Um, I sometimes miss the autom- autonomy of my old life. So sometimes people sort of say, When's good for lunch? or Can we have a coffee? And I think, are you joking? Do you know what teaching is? You don't have, you can't, you're at school. You can't meet people for lunches or coffees. Um, You know, or people sort of say, would you like to do this? Or can you come and talk to people, you know, on a Wednesday at 11 o'clock? You think no i can't i'm a teacher so um I, I i do sometimes miss that autonomy but that is about it do i miss the whole life no do i miss the status definitely not do i miss the business of having to come up with ideas every week for columns no and so i haven't once overall and
1: you know obviously in starting at the bottom and doing something new you know you how do you deal with being bad? I'm not saying, you know, everyone's bad when they begin. And sometimes that's bad because you don't know it. and You've got to learn it. Other things, you actually try and learn it and just realize you're just bad at things. So how do you cope with that?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a, it requires an awful lot of clenching of the buttocks. It really, really does. So um, before I started, everybody who I met in teaching said to me the same thing, which is this will be the hardest thing you've ever done. And every single time I heard that, I kind of nodded politely saying, yes, you know, I know it's going to be very difficult and that's the point of doing it and blah, blah. But inside, I was thinking, yeah, difficult for most people, but I'm going to actually be really good at this because my mum was a brilliant teacher. My daughter's a brilliant teacher. Uh, I like talking to people, um, you know, what can go wrong? And... Actually, I found it was the hardest thing I've ever done and still do. And I was terrible at the beginning. I was really shockingly bad. And that was, it was very difficult. And was it bruising to the ego? Yes, I guess it was. I mean, you know, if you are used to being good at something and then you discover that you know, you've forgotten to take the books that you need to class, you've brought the wrong worksheets, you've forgotten three students' names. I was then teaching maths. The ultimate nightmare was I'd get so flustered, I'd get my own sums wrong on the board. Then I was terrible with the technology. So could I get the right presentation up? Could I control the slides? I was always touching the smart board and then the slides would go mad. I mean, it was it was an absolute horror show. Um, but you just have to have faith and i think the the thing that helped me have faith was that right from the beginning i hoped what i was after was this sort of magic that i thought i would find in the classroom that was the sort of drug that i was after and even from that first lesson i thought yes i absolutely love this there are all of these young faces and I am going to communicate something to them. I am going to teach them something. I'm going to get to you know. I'm to get to know them. They are going to um, teach me things too, as well. And that magic of the classroom, I did feel it in the first lesson. And I thought, I've just got to learn how to stay alive, how to do you know, do all of the things I'm meant to be doing, or some of them. And it's going to be great. So I had that to cling on to right from the beginning.
1: I, I thought it was really interesting. You know, there's the, like all decisions there's a combination of logic and instinct in what you're trying to do. And you say, I want to be a teacher. and I'm going to teach maths. And then you switch to econ and business studies, which has a little bit more continuity with your past role. How did you did you feel a defeat there? Or was it just like, oh, my God, I, you know, I, this is just this is the way to make this work. What, what, how did you feel about that change?
0: N- no, I. Maybe I'm just horribly arrogant no did I feel it was a defeat no I thought okay, that doesn't work let's try something else you know and also that's been very much the way with now teach that we keep doing things that don't work and then we have to switch and change and find something that does work and 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 that is part of um being in this new phase of life where change becomes Easy and not frightening. So, actually, I'm changing schools again in September. Um, the old school that was sort of interesting was wildly strict, and I learned a lot from it. But after four years, I thought, actually, this isn't really working for me. It's not quite, doesn't allow me to be the sort of teacher. So, I'm going to change. I'm going to do something else. So, from September, I'm teaching in a um, school in Whitechapel, um, pretty much 100% Bangladeshi. Um, intake, all girls, and I'm teaching A-level, which I've never taught before. So I don't see that as having got it wrong previously, exactly. I think, well, I'm just sort of edge, I'm feeling my way. Uh, You know, eventually I'd like to find the school that I'm such a perfect fit in, maybe I'll stay till I'm 75. But yeah, you're asking about maths. So I had a lot of these decisions, I take them very, very quickly. So they're often wrong. And the maths was absolutely like that. I thought always loved maths at school, it's a beautiful subject, I've had it with words, um, maths is so amazing, 100%, you know, you can be 100% right, um, what fun I'll teach maths. Uh, if I had thought about it more carefully, I might have thought that actually, although my maths, basic maths, conceptual um, understanding is decent, my carelessness was is horrible. And that was a problem for me as a student. You can't be a careless maths teacher. That doesn't really work. So I then became very stressed at my own carelessness when I was trying to teach them not to be careless. Um, My explanations weren't tight enough. You know, I realized I was going fundamentally against the grain of my personality in this. So there was that. Secondly, I do love talking. I think I might have mentioned that. And the point of going into um, teaching at a later stage was meant to be that there was so much experience of the world that we can all share with our students. Well, my experience of the world is frankly irrelevant if I'm trying to teach them how to multiply in standard form. So for all sorts of reasons, teaching economics has been a much better
1: fit. And I hoped you'd say that about the transition. It just, you know, it's just—it's not about a failure. It's just about moving on to the next uh, boat that's going to take you where you need to go. But the other thing is, you did this big change, and you started now teach at the same time. I mean, that's almost the definition of double or quits, isn't it? I mean, I, I sort of—why? Why? Why do them both together?
0: Well, it was ridiculous looking back on it. It was ridiculous—the hubris involved. I don't know if I feel ashamed or if it's kind of funny or if I'm sort of proud. Maybe it's all of those things. To encourage other people to do this when I had no idea what it was going to be like myself was an astonishing thing to do. I I, I think the timing was by happenstance. I mean, I was going to become a teacher myself, um, I knew I wanted to do that. I was appalled at how the normal recruitment for teaching was so aimed at 22-year-olds. I was thinking, this is insane. There's a massive shortage of teachers nationally. Why are we ignoring this demographic? You know, what is going on here? It's not that you weren't, you you know, there, there are clearly no age limits on becoming a teacher, but no one was saying this is for you. So, I just thought, oh, I'd like to set up something called Teach Last. And I'd gone to a party and I'd met um, Katie Wargrave's mum, Caroline, who I'd once interviewed for the FT. I started banging on to her about how I wanted to be a teacher and really there should be this thing called Teach Last for all of those people like me. And she said, oh, Well, go and talk to my daughter. She has been a teacher through Teach First, and she's set up a couple of social enterprises, and she might be interested in this. And I was actually quite pissed and was just sort of banging on. And then the next day, I got an email from Katie saying, this sounds interesting. So I went to see her, and we got more and more excited talking to each other, and we just kind of went, should we do this? Okay, let's. Um, So You could hardly say that was well thought through, but we had the bit between our teeth and it was really exciting as well as quite scary at times.
1: Well, I, and, you know, the 100 year life, multi-stage life, I'm thrilled you have, because you said earlier, we lack the social institutions to support this transition. So good for you. And what, you know, it must have been an extraordinary commitment to your own individual efforts I guess it's also going back to the sort of wanting to do maths. It's just logic. You've worked out a logic that this is needed. So therefore, let's do it right now.
0: I think you're too kind to me there, Andrew, actually. I think it was, I think luck played as big a role as logic in this. And you're absolutely right. I had upped the ante on myself. So I'd made, you know, this sort of national news story about me becoming a teacher and set and encouraging other people to do it. I had to like it. I didn't... Not liking it was not an option for me. I, and, and I did think in those very... in the You know, those days when I was just messing up everything, I thought, okay, it's five years. I need to do this for five years. Five years isn't that long. Um, but that was only on my darkest days. But, but yes, I had to enjoy it. And I had a duty to all of the other people um, to make it work and stick with it. But... Maybe I needed that kick to do it in the first place. So, but I mean, I think for you to say that I thought through the logic of it and therefore it was going to work is way too kind because you can think through the logic till you're blue in the face and you still might not like it. And that's one of the lessons that we've learned through Now Teach, that, you know, again, with my kind of confidence and arrogance at the beginning, I had thought, right, of course, I can tell who's going to be a good teacher in five minutes talking to somebody. I thought, why do these training providers go through all of these ridiculous assessment days when it's bleedingly obvious? Um... And so of the, in the first year, we took 45 people and I remember making a list and I thought, right, these 10 are going to be amazing. Lucky kids who are going to be taught by these, these people. They are fantastic. This 10 on the other end of the spectrum, I'm not sure they should be on the program at all. I'm really quite worried about them. So I made that list and I was wrong in almost every instance and that the 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 two who dropped out first were in my top 10 and some of the ones who are in my bottom 10 as it were have turned out to be absolutely brilliant teachers so um i don't i think if they'd made those lists about themselves they would have also been very wrong um i think you don't actually know if you are going to like it if you're going to make it work until you've actually started doing it so i think there is an element of luck in there too
1: and going back to the commitment part i thought what was interesting you know lots of people talk about a portfolio career as they get older and you you, you record a conversation with lionel barber he says well what about a board position on a cultural institution or something but you know you although i know you work three days a week on in the teaching side you did commit, and the now teach is really about not doing a portfolio career, but really committing full time to something.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I mean, I do do a few other. So I still write for the FT a bit. Um, but most of the other stuff I do is promotional, directly or indirectly, and the book was included in that, is promotional stuff for Now Teach. So I'm absolutely committed to it. Yeah, and Lionel was saying, oh, yes, I understand you need to give something back. Um, you know, I could help you sort of get on the board of the Tate Gallery or something. And I just thought, no, 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 that's not what I mean at all um, I want to be sort of all in and and I don't think there is any reason whatsoever why people my age shouldn't be really all in in whatever they're doing
1: um, I'm, I'm aware of time is I want to carry on for another 10 minutes if I can if you got yeah, that. do um, so here's a tricky one so of course you say in the book that you were born with all the cards stacked in your favor referring to income education and generation um we talk about the growing need to do the transition how easy to do this transition if we don't have all those advantages
0: um well first of all i don't know because i do have those advantages and i think it's really important in telling my story that i'm sort of very upfront about that um what i can say is some of the other now teach people have done this without any financial cushion um Some have sort of, you know, taken out a second mortgage on their houses, other have borrowed money to do it or have massively cut back their expenditure. And when the job works out as they hope it would have, then it is all worth it. But it obviously makes it much harder if you're taking a huge financial risk. But the experience of them shows that it's still possible and it can still work out really, really brilliantly.
1: Okay. So I want to move on now to sort of I'll say you've been on the other side of this transition. I don't know if that's how you feel, whether you still feel you're going through it. And I want to pick up on the theme that just runs through the end of the book about this sort of trade off between continuity and change. Um, So and and, I'm thinking about people who have made themselves about going through a transition. You you write that the change released you from the force of habit. I wonder if you found those habits coming back or you replaced them with new ones or I mean, how ch- your, your structure is different. You said earlier you had a lot of autonomy, but how different are you yourself?
0: Yeah, I, I haven't succeeded in changing myself at all. And sometimes I wonder whether actually what all of this has been about has been trying to become my mother in some (laughs) spooky and weird way that I tried for the first, whatever, five decades of my life to be as unlike mum as possible and now it's all catching up with me. Um, So there is some feeling of the sort of patterns of family reasserting themselves, but superficially the habits of a married existence, of going into the same office, of doing all of that, all of that I've swept away. So how I spend my time and to some extent who I spend it with have just changed beyond, you know, beyond measure but you can change all of that and you know I've gone from as we've talked about being a sort of you know kind of la da grand person to being little miss nobody um I- I've maybe learned a bit of humility although that I some people don't seem to agree with that along the way um but I have not succeeded in changing myself at all and i know this because when i was writing the book i thought this was something that i should address whether if you change if you move the furniture of your life do you somehow change yourself do you actually reinvent yourself so i sent out an email during lockdown to um I think about 15 people who know me absolutely inside out and have done for decades, my closest friends and my family, asking them if I if they thought I'd changed. Had I got nicer? Because I now spend my time doing more worthwhile things. Had I got more humble? And I'm afraid the answers came back, no, 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 no. Um, which was a bit sobering in a way. But yeah, maybe we're never going to change ourselves and it doesn't really matter. And what we need to do is... Just open ourselves to new experiences, and so that's why in the, the the book, my book is called Reeducated rather than Reinvented, because I do feel that I am being reeducated in a whole fascinating new world.
1: Yeah, there's a Nietzsche quote which I think comes from the Pindar poems, which is kind of the point of life is to become who you are, having realised what that is. Uh, and I always kind of think sometimes change is appealing because you want to become who you're not. Uh, but I, I don't, it sounds a little bit that's yes. just... i
0: I've never even heard that. That's a Nietzsche quote that's passed me by completely. I love
1: that. It's a good one, isn't
0: yeah. it? Yeah, that rings so, so many bells. So it, maybe I am sort of, if it doesn't, yeah, so sort of I've become more myself through this.
1: Now that, so,
0: yeah, I think that's interesting. The other thing,
1: as long as continuity and change, as you said, you sort of there's this, you close in this sort of. The final chapters paint a picture of you sort of you know, becoming your parent, becoming your mother, teaching, doing the garden. But at the same time, there's this sense of just mixing with many more younger people, um, not just students, but teachers and just being open to just a different perspective and all sorts of dimensions of diversity. So I wondered you know is it about accepting being older or is it about feeling younger which of those two tends to dominate in that final chapter for you
0: i've got such strong feelings about this i think that none of this is about feeling younger i really reject the idea of 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 feeling younger as if that was the aim i think what the aim in all of this is and what i come out of it Feeling is that being um sixty two as I now am is a really interesting age to be, and if you are sixty two how very lovely to have as you say um, all of these friends who are not sixty two just when you're eighteen you don't want all your friends to be eighteen it's you know they do tend to be at that age you're not likely to have friends who are sixty two but now at sixty two I have all of these young um, friends who are trainee teachers like me and that we have a lot in common. Of course, we have ways in which we're very different, but that does make life so much richer. And although I'm not longing to be young myself, um, that's not the aim of the game at all. I like being with people who are young, in particular my students, because they do have their whole lives ahead of them. And that's such an optimistic thing.
1: We were talking about change and sort of whether you've changed or not. So I, I, I want to pick up on the sort of the different age theme. And how do you look back at your earlier self? Do you do you, do you see a continuity or do you look back in a different way, whether it be you at the FT or you 20, 30 years ago? Um,
0: yeah, maybe I haven't been doing a lot of reflecting and looking back at uh, myself i guess i've more been or, or i haven't uh, i've been thinking a bit about my upbringing and um i i think i've moved along quite a straight line actually i think because i you know I, I i sort of went to the school i was expected to to the university to the ft all of that was a straight line and now that line has moved off in a different direction But I look at my younger self and I think I was on quite a treadmill all that time trying to achieve various things and goals which were very important to me at the time and now seem a bit less so. Um, Of course, I wince and cringe at my younger self too.
1: Uh, It's probably a good thing to do. We should all do that.
0: Yeah, I mean, I was just a massive show-off and I was insecure and all of that's a bit cringy. But, you know, um, yeah. When I was
1: thinking (laughs) the introduction... I thought it would be wrong to say, and former FT economist," partly because you still write for the FT, but also if the whole point of your book is about a transition, then why introduce you in that way? I wondered how you felt about being known as the former FT economist. Is it how you see yourself, or do you just see yourself now where you are and where you're going?
0: Oh, you see, that is such a great question. I'm, if people say, what do you do? I think it's only in the last six months or so that I've said, I'm a teacher, full stop. Um, I think until then I would have said, oh, well, I'm, I'm a teacher, but I'm a very new teacher. I've just started at this. I've been a journalist all my life. So I felt the need to give them the backstory. Um, I'm not quite sure why. Maybe I felt a bit of a fraud saying I was a teacher because I actually didn't know how to do it. But now, um, now I like saying that. But in saying that, I do feel that I'm being slightly misleading because I'm not a teacher in the way that someone who's been doing it all their life is. I'm very different to that. But still, it's it gives me a lot of pleasure just to say I'm a teacher. As to how you introduce me, Andrew, um I uh, happy to be introduced in any way you see fit. I and, and yeah, so I'm very happy to be the ex FT journalist who still sometimes moonlights. Yep, fine.
1: Um I wanna intergenerational stuff and then we want to now teach for a bit more, but you know, what came through your book really strongly was how you looked up to your parents and got their advice or ignored it, but, you you know, you were thinking of them. Uh, You also turned to your children for advice when you'd make lots of the big decisions. And then you're at a school where, of course, you're mixing across the generations. There's a lot written about the importance of that intergenerational connectivity. Does that drive you, or is it just people are people? I wonder how you feel. Are you conscious of the difference in generations?
0: Um, Yes, I am, and I think that importance is, it is important. Of course it's important because people see things differently at different points in their lives. And I would often ask my children what they think about things. I won't, you know, as I used to ask my parents too. And and actually I'm aware of this at school that although, you know, I love being with my young teacher friends because they're such a laugh, I think they like having me around too because they ask me a lot of questions and for help on all sorts of things because they know that the advice I give them will be a bit different to the advice that their friends are giving. So that diversity, the age diversity is just massively, massively important and I don't think people think enough of it.
1: No, I think that's absolutely right and again going back to Mark Friedman, biology flows downhill I think is a a uh, fascinating idea, but let's move on to Now Teach, which you, you said you're running with Katie Walgrave It seems you know to have been hugely successful, so you sort of achieve this double success. Um, I, I wondered, you know, there's two ways to, to, to look at Now Teach. One is bringing skills and benefit of experience to younger people. And the other is then just exposing those people to the ideas and enthusiasm of younger people. Has your idea of the relative importance of those two things changed since you've been doing Now Teach?
0: no i think it's both and i think you're abs- i th- i mean i think it was both from the beginning and you can break that right down to the to the motivation of people going in that it's partly for them for them to have great for, for them the teacher to you know, learn from their kids to have really sort of, you know, to enrich their lives. But it's also really important the other way around. And I don't weigh one higher than the other. I think they both really matter Um, as far as the motivation of the teachers go. For the good of the whole society, I think it's more important that kids have the best possible education than that sort of board um, derivatives traders in their 50s find something fascinating to do for themselves so for the good of society I think um, uh, it's more for the kids but from for us the as it were board derivative trader uh, both are equally important
1: so you said earlier about how difficult it is to sort of know who's going to succeed and I want to go back to the selection process not just about now teach we know there's lots of ageism in society we see it in lots of sort of employment surveys for older workers and in the book you sort of say you were frustrated initially at feeling people didn't understand the attributes of people in their their 50s Um, but of course at the same time it may well be that people in the 50s don't quite understand what's needed uh, and you know what other skills are needed so i wondered where you were on that one in terms of rejecting older people just because they're older or whether uh, you know, understanding what is needed uh, to re-transition and change needs to be sharpened in older people. I wonder what you would learned from the selection process there.
0: Yeah, I learned in that case that we were both at fault. And, um, you know, as I said, I was at fault because I didn't understand what was actually required now in schools and what the environment would be like and what skills were actually needed. And I think um, some of the selectors were at fault because they had no experience of recruiting people in their 50s, absolutely none. And so to expect them to fit the same model wasn't quite right. So I think this is something that we've done quite a bit of work on and have got a lot better at um, in trying to bring both sides closer together. Um, and and the, the, the weeding out that now Teach does on candidates is really now very good, much better idea of um, who is going to take to this new world and who isn't.
1: In the book, you say about 75 80% of people uh, stick with it and get a job. What happens to the ones who don't?
0: Well, the ones who don't drop out, I guess, but um, what do they do? Well, um, a few have gone back to their old careers. So a few are now back in sort of banking or whatever. Um, far more have hung on to what they wanted, which was to do something more useful. And they may be tutoring kids or they are involved as school governors or some are, are involved helping us at Now Teach. They're sort of still engaged in the world. And one of the things that I think is so... Lovely really is I'm very proud of our now teach parties that we give. Um and quite a few of the people who have dropped out still come along to the parties and so to that extent consider themselves to be part of a movement and close to the others and really do keep in touch. So I, I, I view that as a success, even with those people who decided for whatever reason teaching in a classroom really wasn't for them.
1: And what next for now? Teach. Is It sort of now nurse, uh, now code, or is it? Are we still sticking with teach?
0: Um, well, gosh, um, I think we've got to make this work properly and make it work nationally and make it bigger. And we know, you know, goodness knows, I, I could hardly have been in the FT for so long without knowing that the single surest way of making your nascent concern die is by trying to do too much at once. Um, so. No, but what we hoped is that by setting this up, we would encourage other people to set up, as it were, copycat organisations in other areas. And, um, I mean, we are doing, Katie is looking at, we are looking at doing something with foster, um, uh, to trying to encourage people to become foster parents. So now foster is um, up and running, and that's very exciting. Uh, but, But that's clearly connected, you know, that sort of, you know, it's about children, so it's got a very um, natural connection to now teach. But uh, what I would like to see is not just sort of now nurse for the caring professions or sort of, you know, now detective, now police, um, is uh, I would like to see schemes for people in their 50s to become journalists or to become absolutely anything at all to retrain to start again to bring a more diverse um experience um into those other fields um age diversity experience diversity you know what what what's not to like
1: and it's a major opportunity for educational institutions as well i mean there's so many people of that age in need of it so there needs to be some sort of shift um, and what about Lucy Kelleway? I mean, do you feel like you're reaching a still point or do you think there may be another major change at some point in the future? Will a purple kitchen counter at some point lure you away or, or what do you think?
0: Okay, so first of all, I am nowhere near as good a teacher of economics as I want to be. Nowhere near. I'm decent now. And, and in some things I'm good. I'm good at bringing the real world in. But I am nowhere near as good on those elasticity, uh, you know, trying to get kids who really struggle. Um, how do you teach much, much you know, kids who really struggle to learn? How do you teach them economic concepts? So I'm not as good as that as I would like to be by a million miles. I've never taught economics A-level. I've got a mountain to climb, starting, oh my God, in just what is it? Uh nine days' time. <laughs> uh, so that feels like change enough for now. Um, I did say slightly aggressively to one of my early mentors who clearly thought I was rubbish and the whole thing was a publicity stunt. She said, how long are you planning to keep this up for? And I said sort of bitingly to her, till I'm 75. Um, So a gauntlet was thrown down to some extent, but I don't think that I'm held to that. Um, I'd love it if I was teaching when I'm 75 because it would show that I've really made a success of it. Um, But I... I wanted to call this Teach Last, but I don't think it is necessarily last at all because yeah. last goes on for many, many years. So who knows? Maybe I'm going to be career-changing when I'm 85. I really hope so.
1: Yeah, well, I hope so as well, Lucy. And, uh, well, thank you for your time. Uh, thank you for the book. I w- hope we did three things for people listening. The first was get people interested in going to read the book, "Reeducated" by Lucy Kailaway. Two, to get in touch with NowTeach, nowteach.org.uk. uk but also for those people listening thinking about transitions just uh, uh, mulling over what lucy said about you know the the background and the difficulty or the challenges or the opportunities so all of that of course is covered in the book so thank you enormously lucy
0: thank you andrew it was such a pleasure talking to you this broadcast has been brought to you by the longevity forum as part of longevity week 2021 we are very grateful to our sponsors juvenescence and burnbreak For more podcasts, visit our website, thelongevityforum.com, or follow us on Twitter, longevity underscore forum.